0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: The uh, last long weekend of summer, interestingly enough, called Labor Day. When you consider that global news headline is there are plenty of jobs out there, why aren't Canadians filling them? Well, why aren't they? Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing small and medium-sized businesses across Canada. You'll find him on Twitter at CFIB, at CFIB. So, Dan, thanks for coming on. uh, My friend and I were at uh, dinner uh, Thursday night. We had a choice, watch the French debate or go out for a nice dinner. So, I've seen dozens of politics. Politicians debate one another, and they'll see these two that are coming up. So we went for dinner, and it was a delightful evening, good food, uh, nice people, good restaurant. But they only had two servers, and it was very slow, and they were very apologetic, but they did point out it's extremely difficult for them to find people who will come and work in the restaurant, even though the jobs are there. That's a consistent story, isn't it?
1: It sure is. We're hearing this from coast to coast. Uh, business owners telling us that they really, at this stage in the pandemic, now that most businesses are able to be open, uh, with some capacity controls, the, they're struggling to get their staff back, and and it's a big, big problem for so many small firms that are looking to try to to try to get some money to cover the hundreds of days they lost during the pandemic. But now are not able to earn an income because they don't have the people to be able to serve the customers the way the customers uh, are expecting.
0: Is this right across the uh, the, the country, Dan? And does it uh, does it strike the hospitality sector more than others?
1: It does. It is it is a national phenomenon. We're seeing this from coast to coast. Uh, most acute in in some of the western provinces that have been open for longer and, and are open more widely than than say Ontario. Uh, with that that still has significant capacity restrictions in place but we are seeing it everywhere I was just uh, at my son's baseball tournament in uh, in just up north of Toronto and every single place had a help wanted sign Uh, many of them were apologizing when you walked in because they knew that the waits were going to be much longer than than normal as was the case for you Um, so it's and and the the stress and tension on the business owner because it is the business owner and his family or her family that is right now trying to fill the gap, uh, and that you know that's that's fine in the short term, but gosh, longer term, this is this is putting some pressures on them. Yeah, you know, when you put this this little
0: sentence together and think about it, or two sentences together, and think about them, they really do boggle the mind. In June, there were eight hundred thousand job vacancies nationally, so eight hundred thousand jobs available nationally in June. Unemployment, though, the unemployment rate was still at 7.5%, which was significantly higher than before the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have more jobs available. The unemployment rate is is at 7.5%, which is higher than before COVID-19. So what is driving this? Because let's get at it here. Is yeah. it CERB? <clears throat> because even now... Uh, CERB pays, what, $300 a week pre-tax, which is double what someone earning $15 per hour would earn, Earn rather, working $10, uh, 10 hours per week part-time at uh, 15 bucks an hour. But to qualify for CERB, a person is supposed to be available to accept work. What's going on? Is, is, is CERB at play here?
1: It is. The the new CRB stream that replaced CERB uh, that's through the EI system is paying, as you said, $300 a week. And, and, you know, look, many people will say that listening to this show, well, the problem is not the availability of workers. It's the crappy wages that these businesses are paying. And if government assistance is paying more than the wages of the employees him or that, that, that they're earning, well, then simply they should just be raising the wages and the problem will go away. And, and I, I guess I just want to make sure that your listeners understand that this is not, you know, that the, they really have to delve a little bit deeper uh, in, in analyzing this because on a... It, That may be true for full-time workers, but for part-time workers, uh, you can make vastly more sitting at home than you can by working right now. We do see this as a short-term issue that that CRB stream under EI, that flat dollar rate for part-time workers is supposed to disappear now by the end of October. Uh, But gosh, that's a long time to wait. We need to be able to do both. And I guess our point is that we shouldn't be We shouldn't be people that that are out of work because of covid should absolutely have support but if you're making more than you were earning pre-covid that's where the problem lies and i can understand this if you're a young person the public health officials are still saying stay at home as much as is possible you may have been laid off two or three times because of lockdowns you're making more money what would push you to go back to work if you're not super self-motivated and, and I guess this is what many employers are saying right now is that they're calling their employees, asking them to come back, and some of the dedicated few are, but there are many who are just saying, you know what, check in with me in the fall. When else am I going to have a summer off to uh, to enjoy myself while, while still getting the same income as I did pre-COVID?
0: Yeah, well, it's not the government's job to underwrite salaries.
1: It's not. And look, we have been, I, I want to be clear here, we have continued to push for extending the covid support programs including the wage subsidy the rent subsidy and i would add that we at cfib do see that in certain sectors certain areas where where there are lockdowns still in place or restrictions still in place there are going to be people that are out of work and need that support we're not asking governments to take that away what we are saying is make sure that we're smart about this and ensuring that the programs are only going where they're needed and not just distributing cash all over the place yeah
0: well dan some things are really obvious And that is, if there are health concerns and if there are areas where there is a really significant COVID issue, then yeah, I get it. But this CRB, and I never know what to call these things anymore. There have been so many of them, there's alphabet (laughs) soup. But this CRB is supposed to be available to those who cannot work for whatever the reason is. It's not supposed to be there for people who choose not to work. Isn't that the way it's uh, defined?
1: It's absolutely you're absolutely right but the challenge and this is true of the EI system even in normal times is that many employers will say that it's so easy to get on EI including when you quit your job. Yes there are rules in place that are supposed to guide you back to work tell you that you're not going to get benefits unless the job is not available require you to return to your pre-COVID employment but those kinds of things are generally just not enforced and and so that's ONE OF THE CHALLENGES that WE FACE, BUT, ROY, it's, IT'S MORE THAN THAT. WE'VE DONE SOMETHING PRETTY HARMFUL TO SOCIETY, LIKE, AND I I UNDERSTAND THESE HOSPITALITY WORKERS. The, MANY OF THEM HAVE JUST MOVED OUT OF THAT SECTOR ALTOGETHER BECAUSE WHO WANTS TO HAVE A JOB FOR A FEW WEEKS, THEN HAVE TO GO ON A GOVERNMENT SUPPORT PROGRAM, COME BACK BECAUSE LOCKDOWNS ARE LIFTED, THEN BE LAID OFF ANOTHER TIME. Yeah. SO THE WHIPSAW EFFECT THAT, is, that HAS AFFECTED EMPLOYERS AND That's CAUSED true. GREAT STRESS TO THEM, has also in turn created great great stress and anxiety to the workers in those sectors of the economy, and that's going to take a a bit of time to undo, I think.
0: Yeah, and we're in the middle of an election campaign, so don't expect objectivity from any political party. Dan, before I talk to you about, uh, or ask you for your thoughts on what the two largest parties in the election have been saying about job creation, I knew I'd get emails right away to... Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Well, why don't businesses just raise their minimum wage or raise their wages for their employees, and then people will come to work? So over to you.
1: <laughs> well, look, I was uh, <clears throat> presaging this question, Roy, uh, when we spoke earlier. The The answer is, look, if you think that the average business owner right now is just sitting on a pile of cash, I need you to talk to the person behind the counter in a small or medium-sized business, pretty much anywhere across the country, especially those in retail, hospitality, the service sector, hair salons, nail salons, these businesses have been put through the ringer. Uh, many of them closed down. Uh, with you know, Ontario having the longest lockdowns in North America, some of them were closed down, Roy, as you know, for over 400 days, entirely closed down, and so. As they reopen, they are absolutely strapped for cash. Now is not the time to just jack up wages. I mean, the business is hanging on by a thread and many of them are just going to wrap up altogether as we go through the fall. Uh, Wages absolutely are part of this. There's no question that raising wages can help you attract more people. But if the business right now is not generating the cash to do that, your option is to just shut the thing down altogether, and are we as a country better off if that were to happen?
0: No, we're not, because small business is a community builder and
1: a community driver. And, and they add so much to our local communities, the contributions they make to every kid's sports team and the hot local hospital fundraiser, the jobs they create for young people without experience. We have to think about all of those things as we uh, look down our noses sometime when, and think that, gosh, if they just jacked up wages, we'd be uh, we'd be out of work. I mean I saw some experiments in BC where we actually have now seniors who are volunteering to try to work in a local restaurants in order to save them because in their community they know that that business owner has been behind the counter uh, or at the at the frying uh, you know working work in the frying pan uh, for 72 hours and they need to give them a break so we you know people are coming together to try to help small businesses and and we need to do that. I'm hoping we can get back as many workers to these small firms as possible in the months ahead.
0: Yeah, I hope so, too. So let me just run this by you. You're aware of it, but I just want to run it by you anyway and get your thoughts. Justin Trudeau promising a Canada recovery hiring program to be extended to March of next year. And the Liberal government, he says, would deliver $3.2 billion to the provinces to hire 7,500 new doctors, nurses, and nurse practitioners is that helpful to small business? And I also wonder where Mr. Trudeau will find 7,500 new doctors, nurses, and nurse practitioners. Uh, and Aaron O'Toole commits to a Canada job surge plan, which would pay up to 50% of the salary of new hires for six months after the current wage subsidy ends. Also says he's ready to deliver l- loans of up to $200,000 to small and medium-sized businesses in hospitality, retail, and tourism along with temporary rebates for dine-in restaurant meals. Which one works better?
1: You know, there are merits to both of those plans. On the Liberal side, they've had a couple of really good commitments. Uh, One of them is for the tourism sector. They're looking at extending the wage and the rent subsidy, unfortunately only for the tourism sector right now. Uh, But as you noted, they are also extending for all businesses access to that hiring incentive that is already in place And that would go until the end of March of next year. So those are two really positives out of the Liberal platform. The Conservatives have the commitment to expand on a loan program that the Liberals put in place during the pandemic. Uh, But they're going to, importantly, they're going to raise the maximum up to $200,000. That's a really good move. That program was extremely popular. Up to 25% of those new loans would be forgivable. So the business could keep up to 50000 and as you and I have discussed many times, one of the big things that is that is harming businesses right now is the amount of debt that they're carrying. That conservative platform idea really does help address that. They have their own job surge plan, which is similar to the Liberals hiring incentive. Some businesses benefit more under the conservative idea. Some benefit more under the liberal proposal. Uh, and we're gonna be summarizing all of this for our members and, and pushing it out uh, with uh, obviously letting them make their own decisions as to which candidate they wish to support uh, come uh, September the 20th. Okay, so final question for you.
0: If we have this situation continuing where small businesses can't find the people they require, like the restaurant that uh, we went to dinner to on Thursday night, they can't find the people that they require, and so it puts them under tremendous stress emotional, financial, otherwise they may be closed they may be forced to close. So does that not say to the person who's saying, well, I'd rather just not go to work uh, for 15 bucks an hour and and get my <clears throat> subsidy from, from the government, because if that business closes, the jobs won't be there when the subsidy
1: ends. Roy, I, I, I'm with you, and I I wish more people thought that way, the way that you and I do, which is that long-term thinking about, hey, I if I don't take my job now, and the company I was working for disappears. Am I confident that I'll have another job to go to? Um, I'm hoping that Canadian employees see uh, the the benefits of them returning to work. I know many are concerned, God, given that there is a pandemic still out there. But gosh, we need to have these these workers returning to their jobs in large numbers if we want small businesses to survive. And and that certainly is our plea to get to get Canadian the Canadian workforce back up and running. As quickly as is humanly possible.
0: Okay, about 15 seconds, Dan, do we still have hundreds of thousands of small businesses in this country
1: in under threat, survival threat? We do. We have um, some new data coming out on this very soon, but the last estimate was 180,000 businesses that we expect to, to go away, to disappear altogether long-term as a result of the damage they've sustained during the pandemic itself. Uh, uh, and that's and some right. of the election commitments could make a difference if if we can get them, if we can get those things happening quick.
0: Selena Caesar Chavan, um, she was liberal member of parliament for Whitby, the first black member of parliament for Whitby, Ontario. And she became the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. And uh, when and we've, we've spoken with Selena about this, when she told Mr. Trudeau that she wasn't running again in 2019, he became angry and uh, aggressive verbally toward her. Selina, thank you for coming back on the program. How are you?
2: I am so good, Roy. Thank you for having me back again.
0: Well, it's always a pleasure. I mean, I, I just enjoy our conversations so much. You and too. I, Yeah. Well, I'm glad. And I have to tell our listeners your book, Can You Hear Me Now?, is a book everybody should be reading because not only is it your life but it's a lot of it has to do with your life in that building in Ottawa where you went with objectives and goals and expectations and one after another tell me if I'm wrong one after another you were
2: disappointed well i was disappointed and i think you clearly articulated right at the top of the show why i was i was disappointed right like Everybody can't experience, experience things differently. It might be the person who's saying that everybody experiences things differently. That is the problem. And um, that, that may have materialized. And we've we seen it materialize time and time again in the flip-flopping with our, our, uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, our prime minister, in, uh, in various different ways.
0: Yeah, when as you saw the situation develop in Kitchener and again, people are innocent until they're proven otherwise in Canada. Right. And that's a cornerstone of our justice system and It has to stay that way. Correct. As correct. you as you saw though, the political side of this develop where the prime minister was sitting beside Mr. Saney defending his candidacy when he would attack others who might be similarly uh, challenged uh, with allegations, right. what were you th- what did you think of 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 Trudeau's performance that day?
2: There's a couple sides to this story. So the first is that In previous attempts, there were other uh, MPs in the the government in the 41st Parliament before the majority that were removed because of misconduct. You know, there's still that due process, but there's an allegation and they were removed. I can't remember their names, but they were removed. Um, Other people have been removed because of their conduct. In this particular case, uh, Mr. Trudeau decided to stay and support and sit beside someone um, maybe because, Roy, if, because Raj has left at this particular time, you cannot replace that seat. So you cannot have a liberal replacement in that seat. So that, that riding in Kitchener is now lost. It's not going to be a liberal seat because he's, he's gone past the deadline of actually being able to say, you know, let's get a replacement from him as a liberal candidate in that riding. The second thing which I want your listeners to pay attention to is, you know, in a in a time of, of Me Too and a time of Me Too movement, you have the leader of a G seven country sitting beside someone who has had numerous allegations across the four the the six years that he's been in government, not just recently, but across that time, sit beside him and say, you know, I'm gonna support him when Let's say maybe in 2019, you removed your minister of justice, your your attorney general minister of justice, because you didn't believe her.
0: That's true. Like, let's let's square that circle. Like,
2: if we want to start squaring some circles, let's do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't, well, he would not let Ms. Wilson-Raybould... Uh, even even speak to Canadians. He said he lifted uh, campaign, or at least capital confidence.
2: Parliamentary privileges.
0: Yeah. He didn't yeah. really. He he did a little bit, but he didn't do what had been done previously by, by Stephen Harper. The, he had the opportunity to let Jody Wilson-Raybould speak, and he wouldn't do it.
2: Well, because... <laughs>
0: we, go ahead. You finish the sentence. You know where it goes.
2: I know, yeah. We, I think we both know where this goes, I think right? so, yeah. yeah. You, 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 and this is why you say people experience, experience things differently, because there are certain conversations you want to be had, and there are certain conversations that you don't. And for everything else, you, you cover that up. So, And you know what? Again, I'm going to say to your listeners, you know, it may sound like I have beef with Trudeau. I don't. I have, I have beef with his leadership style. Your capacity to lead means that you have to make decisions that are fairly consistent with your values and the values that you espouse to the values that Canadians espouse to. And in this case, he flawed in the case with, you know, the RCMP, his internal circle flawed uh, with the governor general and how she operated her office, that flawed. So there's a lot of misgivings here. And, uh, you know, his true colors. Were shown to me a while ago, but I think they're they're even more apparent now.
0: Well, you won't raise it, so let me. uh, It's also how he treated you.
2: One hundred percent, one hundred percent, and it's it's a it's more about the rhetoric, more about how we could preserve your own self image as opposed to do what I always say, doing what is right as opposed to doing what's politically expedient. And unfortunately, the leader of the Liberal Party chooses to do what is politically expedient, what will be, be- is serve his best interests, more often than not, than doing what is best for Canadians. And I just don't feel like that's a proper way to govern a G7 country.
0: No. And, uh, and, and for people who don't know, when you informed Mr. Trudeau that you were not going to run again in 2019 he became verbally aggressive toward you, not once, but twice.
2: Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. And that, that type of behavior, you know, I, Roy, to be honest with you, um, and people might say, you know, get over it, Selena, but I'm not over that. I'm not over that kind of behavior because of the fact that you, the Trudeau name has power. And one of the things that I thought about during that those interactions where he was clearly upset uh, the first time, the second time, just angry, um, was how much power does this person hold to literally ruin my life? You I mean, ruin what happens later. You know, I, I don't know that. And and unfortunately, that is the reality of, of part of this situation.
0: Yeah, that's not a, it's not a... Boy, you never should have to be concerned about that. But I understand exactly what you're saying.
2: But believe me, for the last, since 2019, I think maybe now or, you know, in the last few months, I've been less concerned. But it's been a real concern for me how many people are influenced by what he says that, you know, can control how my livelihood is made, what I do, where my children go with my, my last name. I'm glad that my, my children don't have my full last name of, of Cesar Chavan. They have the Chavan and maybe people might disconnect that, but it is a consideration. And, and that's the power with that's the problem with power and how you utilize the power that you have. And I think all of your listeners, irrespective of, of what their title is, need to understand the, the, the power that people have and how they're able to use it for good or for not good.
0: Well, I often think about how Mr. Trudeau treated you, how he treated Jody Wilson-Raybould, and uh, Miss Wilson-Raybould is going to be on this program uh, in a couple of weeks. Oh, uh, nice! You know, she was she was on with us a couple of months ago, and uh, she's going to be back with us after her book is published. And yes. uh, and, and how she treated uh, or how he treated Jane Philpott. Another. And you know
2: why? But, but let me tell you something, Roy. Let's just, let me just be clear. From October of 2019 to October of 2020. So, you know, some people might be listening and saying, oh, you know, Trudeau doesn't have that kind of power. I did not work. I have an executive MBA. I have an MBA in healthcare management. I've co chaired national epidemiologies and research. On, on neurological conditions. I'm a smart individual, <laughs> if I may say so myself. You are. I could I could not find a job from October 2019 to October 2020. The wow. only reason I got a job in October 2020 was because Jane Fulpot hired me at Queen's University. So when you talk about, when you go back, if I could close the circle around power, the power that that Trudeau brand has, none of the consulting companies in Ottawa Would hire me. None of the GR firms would hire me. They hired every other MP that left in 2019. They didn't hire me. And this is the kind of power that he holds. And the only reason I'm working right now is because of Jane Foulpart. Wow. So I I, I just want people to think about that in context. Yeah. Wow.
0: That is stunning. And and very concerning. Well, and and, (laughs) And very concerning. Very concerning. Deeply concerning. That is so, uh, Selena, that is really disturbing. I sat straight upright when you were describing what was going on and, and that you have a job now because Dr. Philpott hired you at Queen's. And you are, and I should say this, and I should have said it at the beginning, you're an extremely accomplished woman. <laughs> you, have, you have degrees, university degrees, master's degrees. You are an expert in so many fields, and you're an entrepreneur. There was a reason they wanted you to run because you're a winner.
2: Right, right. And unfortunately, none of that asset was leveraged throughout my time in Parliament. And I've had people say to me, you know, oh, Selena, you need to work on the inside. You need to create collaborations. You need to create friends. You need to do this and you do that. I did all those things. I created frameworks. I designed, you know, put together metrics. I put together, you know, uh, documents that showed what I wanted to do, how I wanted to accomplish it, how we could measure it, what kind of return on investment would happen with it. And they, they were not paid attention to. And, you know, it, it's fine. It's, it's fine. And I don't expect everything that I, I bring to the fore to be, you know, become policy in Canadian history. Um, but I, I think for me, it was the fact that, I was more utilized for my skin color and my gender as opposed to the actual smarts that I wanted to bring to Parliament. And that was not something that I was willing to stand for. I didn't want to be tokenized and I didn't want to be utilized for performative measure- measurements. I wanted to uh, enact or, or to bring forward something that was quite substantive and that was never leveraged.
0: Yeah, I was, as you were started to speak just now, I thought that must have been very disappointing. But let me change the word. That must have been very discouraging.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you go to work in the morning and you, you think about your end of the day, you look back over your day at work, you want to make sure that you can look yourself in the mirror the next day. You've done some good things. You've, you've contributed. You've been a, a productive member of society. And you've done something that's going to make somebody else's life better through your service. And unfortunately, um, that wasn't the case when, you know, the events, the the three events that I was asked to go to as parliamentary secretary. And remember, being a parliamentary secretary, that comes with a pay upgrade. We are paid a lot of money as MPs. And as a parliamentary secretary, you're getting like $16,000 more a year. And, you know, for for that to just be, well, we're going to pay you $16,000 for you to look black and look like a woman at an event. Is Gosh. that worth it to
0: Canadians? <laughs> like, no, that is, I don't think so. <laughs> that, is, that is so disturbing. And so, and, and I know you've suggested, you've said this before when we've been on the air. You've, you've talked about the fact that you felt, and you have evidence to prove it, that they sent you or asked you to attend events where it was. Correct me if I'm wrong. Where it was predominantly a black audience, so they sent you there yeah. because yeah. they they felt that you would were the right person to send uh and and it was that tokenism yes
2: and that's it exactly and i i i I want i want sort of people to understand that it was so what happened with me is sort of a microcosm of the macro issue where you have a government that tends to do very performative things instead of actually going to the to the substantive to the root cause of problems or policy or solutions to look broader than the easiest thing to do. And if I could go full circle, to go broader than what is politically expedient. What is the easiest thing I could do in government? And, and, you know, sort of just get people off my back. You know, when we thought about, you know, this will be the last, first, past the post-election, that was gonna be something that was gonna be hard. We said we were gonna do it, it didn't happen. Because it actually required some effort to do, not done. Yeah. Boiled water advisories require some intentional effort, not just throwing money at it. Not done either. Like there's a lot of a lot of big issues that require intentional effort and not performative, continuous performative action that is going to just get rid of sort of the the surface of the issue, yeah. but not actually dig deep into uprooting what is wrong with the issue at I, I hand. I,
0: I don't want to do this, but. We've run out of time. I, I no. Like to, yeah, I, would, I want to talk to you. I want to keep talking to you. But we have on this occasion, so we've run out of time. But thank you so much. So here we are. We've had quite a week for national polling and Ipsos uh, for global news. And what would you say the most was most significant about this past week's developments during the campaign, which will reflect on the polling that you'll... You'll be doing.
3: I don't know that there were a lot of developments this week, Roy. I think that really this campaign is mostly a reflection of how it started. That's the thing that's having the biggest impact on uh, on uh, what people are thinking about how they should vote on September the twentieth. And really, the prime minister hasn't been able to shake it. Uh, And what we've moved from or moved into is really a referendum on the character of the prime minister as reflected in why this election was called
0: so over the past you're in kitchener over the past few days there has been the issue of the kitchener mp who has stepped aside and uh, mr Trudeau was there on thursday defending the mp the incumbent running for the liberal party is that the sort of thing, when you talk about uh, how Canadians uh, look at the character of a person, is that the kind of thing that could hurt Mr. Trudeau going forward over the next two weeks?
3: Well, all of these things are momentum killers. So if, if uh, the prime ministers, uh, Mr. Trudeau's and in, in Kitchener are trying to explain uh, the situation with the MP here, uh, he's not talking about what he really wants to talk about, which is trying to find a way to convince Canadians that they shouldn't, be voting for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party. So if he's defending the Liberal Party and defending his candidates, he doesn't have the opportunity to, uh, to do what he really needs to do uh, to get his campaign back on track, because at least in our polling, the Conservatives are now leading. Um, and uh, um, Mr. Trudeau, uh, this, this was an opportunity for him to win a majority, and he can't do that if the other party's leading.
0: That really is, I mean, you and I talked two months ago about the potential, the possibility of a minority conservative government. Nobody was talking about uh, about uh, the liberals losing, potentially, government. At least I wasn't. Uh, but is that now a real possibility, given what you're seeing now, that there could be a very, you know, really a, a, a an O'Toole government?
3: Yeah, there very well could be. And and one of the things that's really difficult to factor into assessing how people are going to be voting on the 20th is uh, how this very peculiar election uh, is uh, going to affect turnout. Uh, so back in 2011, when Stephen Harper won his majority, turnout was really low. It was about 61%. It was lower, by the way, in 2008, but it was, you know, 61% was pretty low. When Justin Trudeau won in uh, 2015, when he won his majority, it was 68 Mm. Uh, last time around, an election of consequence, which was hard fought, uh, the turnout was around 68, 69 again. Now we're in this pandemic election, and what we're looking at is probably a uh, 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 turnout closer to what it looked like in 2011 as opposed to what it looked like in 2015-19, so, uh, which advantages the Conservatives. So that's one of the things the Prime Minister really has to be worried about, and it's one of the advantages that Aaron O'Toole has in this campaign.
0: Yeah. Uh, the polling that you that uh, that Ipsos uh, has done for Global News still shows, does it not, that Trudeau is considered by more Canadians than uh, than Mr. O'Toole or Mr. Singh to be the best choice for prime minister,
3: yeah, it, it does. It, uh, he's he's a few points ahead on that, but the advantage that he has against both Mr. Singh and Mr. O'Toole has very much shrunk in, in, through the three weeks of the campaign. So the momentum is on the side of the opposition parties at the moment, not on the side of the Liberal Party.
0: We talk about this uh, country being regional, and, and you and I have talked about that many, many times. And, uh, and you cert- certainly uh, speak about the regional realities in your book, Next, which I really still continue to insist everyone needs to read in this country. Have it in your house so you can read about what's going to be happening in Canada, dem- demographically and otherwise, politically and and, uh, and economically and health-wise. Just read Daryl's book, Next. Um, but but we talk about the, 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 the country uh, being regional, but there's there was one uh, piece here. If I have this correctly, British Columbia is starting to look like Ontario. Do I don't am I am I understanding this right?
3: Yeah, absolutely correct. So uh, what we see in this election campaign is uh, in British Columbia that the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, and the uh, NDP are all within less than ten points of each other. Very similar situation in the province of Ontario. So um, when we talk about the West. Um, when we normally talk about the West, we you know talk about Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and then assume that British Columbia falls in line with that. Well, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta very pro-conservative right now. British Columbia um, divided among those three parties, which is exactly the same profile that we see in uh, in, uh, in in Ontario, and you know Vancouver voting more like Toronto than it does uh, than it does like uh, say for example Calgary mm-hmm. or uh, other Western cities.
0: So how do we then, uh, Daryl, how would you assess, when you look at four one six nine zero five, 905 the two Ontario area codes that are talked about a great deal and are considered pivotal when it comes to an election result, how do 416 and 905 look? And, and how does, uh, if we can drag Quebec into this equation as well, how does 514 and 418, Montreal and Quebec City, look?
3: Okay, so dealing with the 905 and 416. So the 416 is solidly a battle. Between the Liberals and the NDP, now not in every single riding, uh, but in a few very specific ridings, downtown ridings, for example, the Beach um, and uh, uh, Davenport, Danf- uh, Davenport uh, High Park uh, High Park area. Those are very much um, uh, swing ridings between the Liberals and the NDP, and the NDP looking stronger than they looked in the last election in those ridings. The other uh, area that you were asking about, uh, but still the four one six probably going to vote more liberal than for any other party. Um, The 905, very much divided at the moment between the Conservatives and the Liberals. The NDP doing a little bit better there, which also, by the way, helps the Conservatives because it, uh, it, it bleeds away Liberal Party voters. Those progressive voters are more split which gives the opportunity for the Conservatives to come up in the middle and win more ridings in the 905. But if if the Conservatives are even able to win half of the ridings in the 905 this time around, they have a good shot of beating the Liberals. Is
0: a majority government for any party a possibility?
3: So the question that we ask on every survey is if an election were held tomorrow, how would you vote? So uh, if the election was held tomorrow, as we uh, ask in our questions, um, there doesn't look to be a majority there for anybody. But there's, there's still three works, weeks to go. And I would say that the odds are that the likelihood that the conservatives would form a majority is higher than the likelihood that the liberals would form a majority.
0: Okay. Uh, we're going to do something we haven't done before, and that is uh, you're going to take some phone calls from our listeners who have questions about questions, well about the election and about how maybe their region in the country looks and uh, what their questions are about how this election may turn out. Dale in Vancouver. Go ahead, please, Dale.
3: Yes, Ryan uh, Daryl. My question is this, Daryl. Does the Canadian public trust Justin Trudeau? And I think about what he said in the, um, in, the, um, in the debate when he talked about if he were re-elected as a minority government, the Liberals he would call another election within 18 months because he wants a majority. My, my question is, does the polling show that the Canadian public trusts this man? Thank you. Well, at the moment, uh, on the question of trust, the person who is seen as the most likely to say anything to get elected in this election campaign is Justin Trudeau by a fairly wide margin. So the, the, the issue of trust is really a, a problem for the prime minister, at the moment, and uh, it also, um, uh, I think, underscores the fact that he's had such a difficult time in this uh, in this election. He's not what he was in 2015, and uh, this time around, people are having a hard time believing what he's saying.
0: All right. Dale in Vancouver, thank you for your call and question. Roger is in Muskoka, Ontario. Roger, what's your question for Darrell? Hi, Becker? Roy,
3: and Darryl, it's uh, I'm, uh, Muskoka, Perry Sound is conservative, and I'm hoping it's going to stay that way for sure, but my question is yeah, or more of a comment, is if uh, if the Conservatives did get a minority government, I'm wondering who they would partner with to keep the minority government in power, and if the government was defeated on a money bill or a budget, would the Governor-General uh, ask the Liberals if they could form a government, and if the Liberals and the... Okay, NBC we're getting...
0: We're, we're Roger, thank you for the call. We're getting past the polling uh, side of things, but uh, first part of the question, Daryl?
3: Well, it, it would really depend on the numbers. I mean, so whoever uh, um, wins the most seats on uh, on September the, the 20th um, would uh, look to see which partner would get them over that magic number of 170. Now, if you remember, uh, there was two minority governments um, that were weaker than the one that, uh, that Justin Trudeau finds himself with, although I think the second one for Stephen Harper was pretty much the same. But uh, between 2006 and 2008, uh, Stephen Harper worked with both the Bloc and the, the NDP. Jack Layton worked with the uh, with um, uh, with Stephen Harper. So I think that what would happen if there was uh, if there was a minority and the Conservatives were clearly um, the, the party with uh, the largest number of uh, seats, uh, that um, they would be open to what it is that the other opposition parties would want, and probably would uh, do a reasonable job. I think of putting together something that. Uh, um, that, that that would work because nobody wants to have another election right away. No. Uh, but everybody needs to keep in mind that the liberals get the first chance to form the next government. Just because you win the most seats in the election campaign doesn't mean that you don't get a chance to present a speech from the throne or whatever. So it's a little more complicated than just winning the winning the most seats on uh, on uh, September the 20th.
0: Yeah, that's something to keep in mind. Where does the uh, the whole issue about a vaccine passport fit into this
3: election? It hasn't really fit into the election. Uh, and the reason is because there isn't enough difference among the parties on the question of vaccines. Um, you know, the the Liberals announced, uh, uh, you know, tried to make it a wedge issue on, uh, when they called the election. It turns out that their policy is not any different than what the <laughs> the policy was of the Treasury Board. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Aaron O'Toole has been pretty clear and, Bo- and Jagmeet Singh has been pretty clear that they support uh, uh, doing something pretty strong on vaccines, although, you know, obviously... Um, uh, Aaron O'Toole is uh, more open to some other ways of dealing with things, but uh, I, it hasn't turned into a real cutting issue, I would say, in this election campaign.
0: Daryl is in Sussex, New Brunswick. Daryl, what's your question? Or David, rather, David, what's your question
3: for Daryl? Yes, the man in BC kind of stole a bit of my thunder, but if I can expand upon it, I believe he asked if the Conservatives won, who would team up with them to form a government, and I heard you guys discuss them while I was waiting. But uh, don't you think there's a possibility that the Conservatives and the Liberals could form a coalition government? Uh, Personally, I would doubt that very much. But um, I I think if the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, loses this election campaign, it's going to put a lot of pressure on him in terms of his leadership. So the Liberal Party will probably turn inwards to try and straighten out uh, what that situation is, they would be vulnerable. Uh, so my expectation is that they don't necessarily have to form a coalition with the government. Uh, they may vote with them on a you know, a bill-by-bill basis or whatever, but they will have uh, significant issues that they're going to have to deal with on an internal basis. And the problem that the Liberal Party has, of course, is that they made a very firm commitment to the leadership of Justin Trudeau. Uh, this was supposed to be a populist party that was going to be um, uh, essentially the a, a party of Justin Trudeau, as opposed to the Liberal Party of which Justin Trudeau was going to be the leader. So the institutions of the Liberal Party, I would say, are uh, past Justin Trudeau, are fairly weak. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in those internal battles over what the, the future leadership of the Liberal Party will be if Justin Trudeau loses the election on September 20th and feels compelled uh, to uh, to uh, to leave the leadership of the party.
0: Yeah, and something that I uh, just remember, it's, I guess, it's almost trivia to some people, but I, I think it's, to, to, to me, I, it's something I can't, I, I don't forget. And that was 2019, Daryl. The Liberals won the, that government, the minority government, with the lowest popular vote percentage uh, for a winning party in the history of Canada, federal elections.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the first past the post system, put them in a situation where they could, uh, they won, obviously, a very strong minority government. They only need one other party on any vote to be able to continue in government. But, uh, yeah, I would would describe it as, you know, 2015, uh, the Liberals could do no wrong, particularly the Prime Minister could do no wrong. 2019, disappointment. 2021, you know, people not feeling very positive about the Prime Minister. Yeah, these days he's got. I would say dis- we move past disappointment to another type of an emotion.
0: My good friend Nino Colovecchio, member of the Parti Quebecois, former PQ candidate, political strategist, college professor, Montreal radio talk show host, can't hold a job. This man, how, how are you, Nino?
4: I'm fine. I'm fine, Roy.
0: You are and, one uh, of the, you are one of the most accomplished people I know. You really are.
4: Uh, well, my bucket list is getting is pretty full. I, I, you know, I, I'm I'm crossing off a lot of things there, which is not a good sign.
0: <laughs> no, you you want?
4: To... <laughs> Let's not even closer, go there. Getting closer to the end of that bucket. <laughs> Anyways, move.
0: <laughs> look, it's. I said to somebody, I may be in the fourth quarter, but as long as I'm not in the last two minutes, things are all right.
4: <laughs> there you go. And God knows how long it takes for the last two minutes. Before to play ever, out American football. So yeah, forever I hope. <laughs>
0: Hey, so look. Thursday was the uh, le débat en français on TVA. So how did it go? What's your assessment of how each individual did? And was it was the pressure really on Trudeau more than on the others?
4: Yes, I think the the pressure was on Trudeau because first of all, the debate started off as many expected on the issue of should there have been an election in the first place, and the election is just as useless in Quebec as in the rest of Canada. So there was a, a very, uh, a very good debate on that issue. And I think that's where uh, Trudeau took the worst of it. Um, and uh, Blanchet for, for the Bloc Quebecois was excellent as was expected. He's, you, you, people in Canada have noticed that he's also excellent in English, even though you may not agree with his points of view, but he's a, an excellent debater. And he really took the whole debate. Uh, But surprisingly, I I found uh, O'Toole, I I was surprised at how well he speaks French, first of all. Um, uh, I didn't expect that. Having been used to years of conservatives that, you know, barely can get a sentence out, he was actually quite good. And uh, I was also surprised at uh, how uh, open he was uh, to Quebec's... uh, Uh, requests over the years of uh, not having the federal government get involved in our affairs or getting involved in jurisdictions that are provincial. And he, on more than one occasion, stated clearly that he would not interfere with jurisdictions that are uh, Quebec jurisdictions. So that, that helped him out a lot, I think. I think he did very well. And unfortunately for Mr. Singh, he looked like he was just there for the ride.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I had uh, somebody else tell me, a uh, f- friend in Quebec called me and said, I was really surprised at O'Toole because he came out of this looking far better than I anticipated. And I said, well, what's it going to translate to as far as potential support for the Conservative Party is concerned in what should be, federally anyway, the liberal stronghold? Well, what do you say to that uh, that question?
4: Well- well, what I think there are some fundamental issues with Mr. O'Toole that that Can, that Quebecers will have a problem with. First of all, is is a refusal to uh, to drop this support of the oil industry and everything else related to it, being pipelines and the like. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't go over very well in Quebec. Um, for the rest of it, I'll tell you. I, I was, oddly enough, uh, please, you rec- I know you're recording this, it'll come back to haunt me, but oddly <laughs> enough, <laughs> oddly, oddly enough, uh, I listened to Mr. O'Toole and I can argue with him uh, over 80 to 90% of what he says, you know, particularly when he says it's not my business to tell Quebec how to spend their money. So that's, that's very interesting. So his point, I think he's tweaked uh, his position on Quebec very well. And I think he's going to improve uh, his his position in Quebec. Will that be enough? Uh, I I don't I don't think so. I think that the liberals are, are are have seats that they cannot possibly lose. The ones that they're holding right now, they're already at a probably at a bare minimum. Uh, the bloc can gain a few seats. Uh, the situation like I said, if there was a, a if there was a a, a a position on the ballot where people could vote and say, leave everything the way it is, that's probably the way it would go over in Quebec.
0: Okay, now you've heard me say this before. You heard me say it in a radio station where we were, both worked. I've said, never say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. <laughs> Nino, stand by. Here you are.
4: Uh, I listened to Mr. O'Toole, and I can argue with him uh, over... Eighty to ninety percent of what he says—that's <laughs> it. And it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Never say to me today. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'll remember that.
0: <laughs> hey, what are the what are the issues in the province of Quebec? What is really driving the election campaign that nobody wanted? What is the what are the issues in Quebec?
4: Well, listen. It, it the issue that the obvious issue and and it is the issue is this whole pandemic. How do we end it? How do we get out of it? How do we move on from it? I think everybody and, and everybody that I know and everybody in Quebec is like in the rest of Canada is had it with this issue, right? So um, we're, we're fortunate that it appears that our provincial government is handling this extremely well. Uh, and so, yes, uh, you know, there are some that think that the liberals could have done a better job, and it and and it doesn't seem that Mr. Trudeau has won the hearts of Quebecers with the way he handled the pandemic, even though some may say he didn't do such a bad job. So the issue here, really, right now is the pandemic. How do we get out of it? How do we move on from it, right? The, and the other issue that is always there, and that is why I believe Mr. O'Toole did the right thing, uh, is, you know... Pierre, Pierre, you see, look at this, lapsus linguae. I was going to say Pierre Trudeau, but <laughs> the, the policy is the same. Justin Trudeau's view of creating a stronger federal government that is, you know, what is national policies and, you know, telling provinces how to spend their money right. doesn't work in any of Canada and particularly not in Quebec.
0: So are we segueing here a little bit toward the relevance of sovereignty in the federal election in quebec is <laughs> this, what you're, this, is this what you're doing
4: yeah, let's put it this way if i wanted to be machiavellic <laughs> about this <laughs> i would say let trudeau win there's a much better chance for, for sovereignists to, to surge if if justin trudeau wins than if say o'toole wins
0: yeah, I, you know, we're because, recording this as well.
4: Yeah, because Justin Trudeau is going to, you know, he, he has this great idea of daycares, but he wants to establish a national daycare, which is a beautiful idea, but we've already got it in Quebec, one of the best in the world, actually. And now he wants to put his nose in there and and, establish, and put in guidelines and, you know, stay out of it. Then there's the issue of, you know, he wants to get into our health system and tell us how to deal with with uh, old folks' homes and residences for, for the elderly. And he wants to establish guidelines. And Quebec, and much of the rest of the country also, is saying, would you kindly mind your own business, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's all about.
0: How does, uh, how does Quebec see the rest of Canada now? And let me just ask you as well, how does the rest of, how does Quebec see Western Canada? Is it is it even a factor in in Quebec politics? The rest of the country? No,
4: in Quebec, in day to day, in day to day, no. Amongst people who are very politicized or very much involved somehow, like we are in de- debating politics on a on a daily basis, we maybe more, we have maybe have more opinions. But the average Quebecer uh, really doesn't seem to uh, doesn't it doesn't really ring. You know it doesn't really cause them much of an issue the pro- the difficulty is that um there's quebec bashing that happens a little bit in the rest of canada that's that's more annoying um you know when when politicians claim that we're more racist in quebec than in the rest of the world than the rest of the country you know these issues will will uh, Will uh, uh, annoy the average Quebecer, but not to the point where it becomes a major issue. I think it's it's, it's very much a live and let live kind of attitude. Uh, I listen to Mr. O'Toole and I can argue with him uh, over eighty to ninety percent of what he says. Uh, I listen to Mr. O'Toole and I can argue with him uh, over eighty to ninety percent of what he says.
0: I understand that that's already part of a Conservative Party of Canada broadcast commercial. <laughs>
4: fabulous <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give them a better recording if they want
0: <laughs> nino kolovec here was my guest uh, from montreal
4: as you know as you as just just a point i i mean i'm a sovereignist but um i um i i have no present allegiance to any one of those political parties no I, <laughs> so. I,
0: and you were a very staunch federalist for many years of your life
4: long ago long ago yes yeah i was i was um and yeah, I, it's it's one of those things. The evolution of intellectual thought.
0: <laughs> what uh, what do you think the outcome in Quebec is going to be as far as the seat distribution is concerned? With the yeah. block, will the bloc get enough seats that they can really claim to represent Quebec?
4: Well, they already ha- they have them now.
0: And no, but I'm will, talking about after yeah. September twentieth.
4: Oh no! There's a, You see, there's a there's a core number of seats that the Bloc cannot take away from the Liberals. Most of those being on the Island of Montreal, uh, it's considered without without any. Um, uh, I'm not any derogatory, um, uh, acid, any derogatory aspect of what I'm about to say, but it's considered the ethnic vote in Montreal, and it is Liberal, a hundred percent. Or very close to it. Okay, so there are some seats that they cannot take away. There are seats, however, that belong to the NDP on the uh, that are still uh, from the old um, Orange Wave uh, of the Jack Layton created. There are some seats that are still hanging on to the to the NDP that that are in play that the block could could take. And uh, as far as like uh, around Montreal, the northern and southern, the north shore and the south shore, they're almost. You know, a hundred percent block. So you see, it the position it'll be it'll be difficult for the block to increase substantially its number of seats because there's just some seats that will not move.
0: Is there opportunity for the liberals to lose some seats? I mean, could Trudeau make enough mistakes in the next two weeks to cause himself and his party some significant problems? And conversely, is there opportunity? For O'Toole or Singh to create the kind of dynamic where they would gain from from such yeah. a development,
4: I, I think that um, it, it would be difficult. Honestly, uh, I think the the NDP is on its last leg here in in Quebec at the, as we speak. Um, there's not much left of that orange wave. Uh, there's uh, there's no not much room for the Liberals to grow. Uh, they could lose a couple of seats, but it will not be major. And the Conservatives just you know the strength of their candidates is just not there for them to to think that they will uh, they will have a surge in the last few weeks. So no, I'm expecting things to look an awful lot like they did at the end of the last election.
0: And and you say that the 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 main issue for Quebecers is the pandemic. Yes.
4: Well, right now that, I think that is the major preoccupation. What every Quebecer? That's probably what every Canadian. Um, You know, how do we how do we get out of this and how do we move on? Uh, Which government is going to provide us uh, with a proper um, plan to get us out of this? Um, I'm always impressed, by the way, with these great one thing, as long as I've been involved in politics, I've always asked myself, how can you promise a specific number of jobs? This really amazes me. One person says, we will create 100,000 new jobs, a million new jobs, 700,000. Very interesting. This is about the same thing as those trees that were supposed to be planted. You remember those? I do. Uh, How many millions of trees were they supposed to plant?
0: Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, we haven't planted those either, right?
0: No, they haven't. It's
4: one of those things. Let's throw a number during election. That's right. An election. Let's say, you know, and and Robert Bourassa in Quebec was famous for his un million d'emplois. A million jobs! Wow, you know, great. Never did it. You
0: You know, (laughs) I I, you know that I I interviewed him the week after the nineteen ninety five referendum on the shore of the Pacific Ocean in San Diego. Talk about surreal! Wow. (laughs) Hey, you know what about this? uh, The issue because it's one of great contention, uh, certainly with my listeners, and I've caught a lot of Hades over some of the things I've said. And I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm not writing people. I'm just giving my points of view and do what you want with your life. But what about this issue of, of, uh, of COVID pass or at least vaccination passports? How's that going over in Quebec?
4: Oof. Oof. Yeah, that's like the, 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 great can of worms. Um, there are people who are camped in their position to not get vaccinated and that will not change. And they, and they are, you know, diehards. They will not move from that position. Uh, I, I can tell you that i don't understand it but that's that is what it is and that will that represents perhaps a maybe a 10 12 of the population but i don't think there's anything governments can do other than force people uh you know lock them up in the olympic stadium until they get vaccinated uh, there's not much you can do that will make that will move that and you know, some people say it's an issue of, of their own uh, control of their own body or whatever that may be. I think it's a selfish position, but then, then again, that's my point of view. Uh, I do have, I've had my two vaccines. I'm very happy I did, but I don't think there's, it's such a a, a, a a position that is so strong for those who are against it at this point, the small percentage that is left, that it's not going to change. On the other hand,
0: one don't the, say, don't say, say that. Don't say that. Don't say on the other hand.
4: Come on. On the other hand, no. Okay. That. No.
0: That's like on that's the other like other a one-armed economist, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> mon ami, c'est toujours un plaisir. Merci. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites.